Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It is the job of historians and journalists to take contemporary information and give context and connection to events far beyond the time in which they happened. This is true for wars, for politics, and for religion. Even in these highly polarized times, when we all hear the admonition, especially around get-togethers of family and friends, to make sure you never discuss politics or religion. So what is it about these subjects that are so personal, so internal, so potentially inflammatory, that they have been so powerfully connected, both historically and right here in America, particularly since the post-war years? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Kenneth Woodward. Kenneth Woodward is a scholar as well as one of the nation's most respected journalists. He served as Newsweek's religion editor for nearly 40 years, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to the program today to talk about his newest book, Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics, From the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. Ken Woodward, thanks so much for joining us. Well, I wish I'd written that introduction. Thank you for that. (laughs) Well, thank you. One of the things you talk about is that this period from the post-war period essentially to the present is, as you say, one of the most volatile religious periods in American history. Given the long scope of history, given the degree to which religion has been so much a part of various aspects of American history, talk about why overall, why you think that's the case. Well, I think we have to keep in mind um, a century earlier, the middle of the 19th century, uh, leading up to the uh, to the Civil War was a similar period. And you had a burst, a sunburst of sort of religious uh, enthusiasm and energy. It was the Second Great Awakening. It was the time when people, a lot of Americans, uh, distrusted the institutions that, uh, the religious institutions uh, that they uh, had inherited. And so they went back, uh, what they thought to primitive Christianity and out of that, and, and to find what the, the Christianity really was like, and so we got the Mormons, and we got the Disciples of Christ, and we got uh, the um, Methodist Church becomes, uh, by the middle of the century, the second largest uh, institution in the country, uh, second only to the federal government itself. So that's, uh, that's, a, that's a volatile period. This one is uh, for different reasons, um, most of what I talk about is that kind of uh, similar sunburst of energy um, radiating out into new fo- new forms, new quests. Uh, I'm thinking, uh, you know, the the, uh, the immigration act of, uh, of the middle '60s brought a lot of uh, people who weren't allowed in before, including. Uh, Buddhist uh, uh, holy men and Hindu holy men, and uh, this coincided with the uh, spirituality quest of the counterculture. And the next thing you know, you've got uh, uh, people like the Beatles seeing uh, uh, the Maharishi and uh, the Dalai Lama uh, takes on glamour and so on. And, he, and all sorts of religion uh, were being uh, experimented with like they did with drugs, uh, except, of course, the inherited religion of mom and dad. Uh, this was an effort to, to, to flee that. That's a part of the picture. Part of the picture, too, was, uh, and I was at Newsweek, I uh, doubled as a, the ideas editor and writer there, too. Uh, 
there was uh, a, a turn to the therapeutic, as Philip Reef talked about it, mm-hmm. um, and the emergence of psychological man. And, and the presiding genius there, um, although he was a very uh, reticent person, was Eric Erickson. But the whole effort to answer the mysteries of life and death um, by going to the social sciences was something else that took place, and people didn't always notice that the quest was essentially religious. I'm thinking of uh, stories I can tell, and we can tell, I can talk later about it, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and so on. There were more books written on death and dying, and not just hers, in the 70s than there was um, in the previous four decades. One of the things that is clear in all of this is the degree to which there's this overlap between religion and culture. And I suppose one of the questions that emerges over and over again is the degree to which one is driving the other. It's a little bit of the chicken or the egg question, the degree to which cultural changes are driving religious changes and vice versa. Talk a little about that. Well, let me put it to you this way. Um, When I went to Newsweek in 1964, um, I came out of a... uh, Parallel, what I call a parallel culture. There was a later one in evangelicalism too, but this one was was Catholic. And there, um, among Catholic folk, religion was very much the center of of, uh, of what was going on. Um, we were reminded uh, here at Notre Dame of the uh, famous uh, British historian um, who said uh, 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 Christopher Dawson taught at Harvard later. Um, that at the center of culture is cult or worship or what is of highest value. So there's always been a connection in the West, um, even when it's been repudiated during the Enlightenment, uh, a relationship of religion to to culture. Uh, When I go to the magazine, I find that I'm just one section among others, right? The sports section, the law section. So I've been sequestered. And one of my... uh, one of my aims very quickly came to be to do in Newsweek uh, the kind of reporting that made connections, uh, that didn't isolate religion. After all, people, uh, if, if people are religious, um, they're also involved in the culture. They're also political beings. Uh, so these, how, how are these uh, connected? I'll give you a little short example um, that comes to mind. It's not in the book, actually. Um, there was an award given to Archbishop Yakovos, who was head of all the Greek Orthodox here in this, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, in one of these award ceremonies. And uh, we were talking, and, and he said that, uh, he said, I come from Boston. And he said, you know, in Boston, um, before they baptize Catholics, they sign them up with the Democratic Party, or so it seems. Same with Mayor Daly of Chicago. So he said, that's why we Orthodox are all Republicans. And uh, there's the connection, but it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a loose one. I think what's happened today uh, with the decline in religious literacy and uh, self-identification, um, our polarized politics, this is just a venture of mine, not mm-hmm. something in the book, um, takes on something of the uh, oh the polarity that can occur in religion 
uh, at bad at, at bad times, so that we don't talk to the other person. I see that happening in politics right now. Part of what's happened is that while you talk about the way it was, was segregated at the magazine, where we are today is the maximum conflation of politics and culture and religion, and that so many mm-hmm. of the problems seem to stem from the degree to which they are now all in the same pot. Mm. Well, I I would put it this way, and I learned a lot, and this is in the book toward the end, but uh, uh, I'm a big fan of the uh, Pew Research Center and the people that work there. Um, And uh, a political scientist who who has done a lot of work with uh, John Green, University of Akron, Um, John did a little book on on, uh, the faith factor in American politics, and I subscribe to this. Uh, he talks about, well, let's, let me put it this way. The issues that separate and politically and which to which each of the parties um, uh, addresses, but only every four years, are not issues, uh, there weren't issues un- really until the 1970s. I'm talking about... Uh, abortion and in particular um and um but there would be other issues as well the whole um, uh, liberation of um sexual minorities the whole sexual revolution um abortion after all is tied to the postponement of marriage for a very long time we, we have to make those connections anyhow these are the so-called cultural issues or culture wars and so on didn't exist um i'm i'm old enough to have remembered that what you talked about between republicans and democrats was uh the size of the government uh how much of a social net uh should we uh tolerate in society um taxes and taxes on whom and for what um foreign policy tended to uh tended to stay the same no matter what was said during election year. Uh, In my book, I describe the 50s in in rather glowing terms compared to, say, the 60s. Um, But the passage of the torch that was passed from Eisenhower to Kennedy when Kennedy won in 60, um, Kennedy had trashed, as as, as goes on in uh, politics, um, you know, warning that... uh, Soviet Union was ahead of us and all that kind of thing. It was all campaign language. He basically came to, came on and kept the same foreign policy. If anything, he was more aggressive than Eisenhower would have been. So uh, to, to round this out, uh, what plagues our politics today are cultural issues which presidents typically can't get deal with anyhow. And uh, you're seeing that now. Uh, so... Uh, that that bothers me a lot. I, I think they're genuine issues. They're just not solvable uh, from a White House. It's interesting because if you look back at this contemporary history, in many ways it was mm-hmm. the left that brought religion and morality into the political discussion in the civil rights movement and in opposition to the war in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, one of the ways that, well, l- let me put it this way. Uh, if, when the reader opens up the book, they're going to be surprised to find that in none of the chapter titles 
carry the word Protestant, Catholic, or Jewish, all right? They're not there. They have different categories. And I created these as, for several reasons, one of them as a way to connect religion with, with uh, culture and politics and vice versa. Uh, one of them is called embedded religion. And that's the way most people get religion. They don't get it individually. They get it, it comes with the territory. Um, we occupy social and, and geographical spaces, and especially back in the 50s, um, uh, where I, the, I show up about the relationship between uh, where you live and uh, the kind of religion you probably were if you were religious. And, and it's still true in Wisconsin and Minnesota that you're likely to be um, you know, Lutheran or Catholic and that religious boundaries and so forth, that's what, what's created uh, a greater and a thicker kind of diversity than what we have today. After all, diversity is one of those weasel words we use when we really mean something else. I mean, complain about a lack of diversity someplace, and what they're really talking about is there aren't enough women. Well, you know, there are two kinds of human beings in the world, male and female, and uh, some um, uh, filter types in between, let's say, uh, on the matter of, of gender. Um, so the, the, um, uh, the, 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 the connection uh, uh, the, between that kind of religion and what occurs in the period you're talking about with civil rights movement, you get movement religion. Now, there's always been movements in religion, and if the Hebrew Bible is full of movements. What else is Exodus but a movement? Um, so, um, and then settlement, and then movement. Um, the the movement religion uh, would say, we don't care if you're from Green Bay, Wisconsin, or Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or if you're Unitarian, or Catholic, or no religion at all. What matters is the movement. So the movement colors, the movement is the way you really get religion, and it colors the kind of religion you get, the kind of Catholicism, the kind of Methodism. Um, uh, the, the last chapter of my book, you remind me of all these remarks, um, I make the argument, and I make the argument also uh, this week in the Wall Street Journal um, based on that last chapter, but I ask people to look, I ask the reader to consider um, that from McGovern on, the Democratic Party has been in its Methodist moment, and that Hillary Clinton represents this. And um, and uh, to my mind, the Democratic Party of today is not in continuity with the Democratic Party of Roosevelt, Kennedy, Johnson, however nostalgic Democrats want to be about that. Um, it's not really the party of labor anymore, uh, except certain unions. Uh, it's very much the party independent upon uh, Planned Parenthood and, and, and things like that, and the, the um, feminist movement, uh, however diminished that may be, uh, they do rely on these people to make the phone calls and, and the rest. Um, and, and the changes with McGovern, and I really can't talk about this at great length on the phone, it really has to be read, but in any case, I, I, McGovern was 
the son of a Methodist minister, grew up in a Methodist manse, went to a Methodist college, uh, decided to become a preacher himself, uh, changed his mind, got a Ph.D., went back to teach at a Methodist college before he was called on by the party to to resurrect the party in uh, South Dakota. And if you read the 1972 party platform, you will and read it against uh, the book of resolutions that was put out by the Methodists at their quadrennial convention. This is what is called research. You will find the Democratic Party echoed what the Methodists had to say, sometimes word for word. So um, I'm, there's a certain secular Methodism that hovers in a very, uh, what I call righteous politics, that one could say uh, Mrs. Clinton certainly is the more, you know, the more religious of the two candidates, but in some ways the Democratic Party is the more religious party. Mm-hmm. But it's a, I'm really talking about a righteous politics, including uh, legitimate righteousness, uh, uh, let's say on the prophetic model, but also the self-righteousness at the same time. Some of that self-righteousness came out in, in my judgment, in Mrs. Clinton's uh, speech uh, about the uh, basket of deplorables. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a sense of high-mindedness that is off-putting. When did that begin in the political process? If you look back at this period that you're writing about, when did we begin to see mm-hmm. the, the earliest manifestations of that? You know, I, it really starts with the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. It was powerful. I was a civil rights reporter before I went to Newsweek, and uh, I got turned around. I didn't know any black people. I lived in a white suburb. And... Um, I argue in the book, did that make us racist? No, the separation was racial, and it still is, by the way. After all, I'm from Chicago now. It's it's much worse than it was when we lived in New York. Um, The idea of liberating people meant that you uh, had obviously a moral dimension to it. And in the case of King, um, who also, by the way, studied and got his degree from a Methodist uh, seminary, um, uh, but it was, uh, the whole movement was rooted in the black church. Uh, that was the institution that gave it power. Um, yes, there were the black Panthers and whatnot, but in King, it was, uh, it was, it was the black church speaking and out of experience. Um, I think what well, we move there, then we get series of movements. Do we not? We get the women's movement. The women's movement borrowed things, techniques like, um, uh, people don't know this, most people, uh, borrowed techniques like consciousness raising. Uh, that came from liberation, believe it or not, liberation theology, Paolo, Paolo Ferrer in, uh, in Latin America. He's the one that first experimented long before the women got a hold of it here. Uh, the difference was uh, Latin American liberation theology, I have a whole chapter on it, uh, was dedicated to the poor. Uh, the civil, uh, the uh, women's movement, um, in, as I write about it in the book, particularly in the in the, um, in the persons of Betty Friedan and uh, the other journalist uh, uh, Gloria Steinem, mm-hmm. and they were never more than journalists. They were interested in Vassar and um, Mount Holyoke and uh, Wellesley uh, women. Um, being in the same uh, room as surgeons, 
you know, with Harvard and Yale graduates. They were not concerned at all with the poor. You read their books, you will find it's just not there. Uh, they also were not religious, uh, both Jewish, but highly secular. And, and uh, I met both of them. Um, didn't find them very interesting people. Uh, but uh, th- that... Uh, but it had that, 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 that crusade quality to it. Mm-hmm. And then, the, then you had the gay movement. And, uh, and now we're getting into ever finer um, and smaller uh, segments of the society when we get into transgendered and so forth. Um, all of that really is a, comes from a, in the good sense, a moral impulse um, to, to, to liberate um, but it doesn't have the corresponding influence of, of responsibilities and so forth. Uh, I look back as an old civil rights reporter, and, and I have to say, and I'm not alone in this, that the paradox, and you see it in Chicago and in books about uh, the black community in Chicago, when middle-class blacks, excuse there were, uh, when the ghetto was there and they couldn't move out, uh, into white communities. Uh, African Americans, whether it was in the South or in the North, created vibrant places, uh, vibrant cultures. There wasn't a lot of money, but the jazz clubs and all the rest, uh, all the things that we celebrate, especially in jazz, which is the greatest, you know, American contribution to, to, to music worldwide. Um, paradox is that they, when they, when the ghettos uh, are broken and the middle class can move out, um, you get eventually what we have in Chicago today. Um, communities without hope. Uh, neighborhoods that you don't want to be in because it's dangerous uh, and, and the rest. So um, the whole liberation motif is not simply, to pardon the expression, you know, black or white, good or bad. There are, as there always is in history, paradoxes, and some of them are cruel, and this is one of the cruelest. You talked about liberation theology, which to a large extent came out of Latin America. In this globalized age, which is a good part of the period that you're writing about, to what extent mm-hmm. have there been other influences in the American experience and in the areas that we're talking about that came from outside of the country? Well, first of all, I wouldn't have, since this is about American religion, it seems odd to talk about liberation theology, but one of the things I do in the book is to talk about how implicated Americans uh, were, North Americans, U.S. citizens, Mm -hmm. if you will, were implicated in Latin American liberation theology. Um, and a number of characters from the U.S. were in at the beginning in the organizing of, of this. Um, but that said, I, if you're asking what outside influences, um, you know, I can only think of the obvious. King read Gandhi uh, and uh, was influenced by uh, the, the pacifism there, um, uh, there, I'm sorry, the nonviolence. And uh, that was certainly a strong influence. Um, I think to take another chapter, what I call it, when the secular was sacred, uh, it's about the time that time did its famous cover, Is God Dead? 
a friend of mine here from Notre Dame wrote that, by the way. My, he was my, uh, one of my, my competition at the yeah. time. Um, there was a whole celebration. Harvey Cox's Secular City was a huge bestseller. Um, there was an idea, sense uh, with Kennedy in the office that we, uh, man had come of age and uh, didn't need the metaphysics and ontology and, and myth and all this sort of thing. Um, and that we were pragmatic problem solvers. Well, a lot of that came from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's amazing how a book uh, like his letters and papers from prison can affect a lot of people. It certainly affected Harvey Cox. Well, they're talking about the celebration of the, the secular and all of that. Um, also, they were recognizing among the Protestant elites that they weren't the elite anymore. This wasn't the 40s and 50s when a man like John Foster Dulles is both Secretary of State and a huge, huge figure in the National Council of Churches. Um, so uh, that was a time, the era of the Protestant establishment uh, very much uh, uh, running things. Uh, and setting the tone for a lot of other people uh, who weren't in the Protestant elite. Anyhow, um, these are just grabbing a couple of the uh, a couple of the uh, of the influences. And I think you know when you go back, people forget. My grandchildren, my children wouldn't know this. That's why I wrote the book. Um, you think of Albert Camus and, and some of those postures. Uh, uh, at least uh, among the elites in this country, they were, and particularly people in religion, um, they were influenced by a lot of this, uh, the outsider, uh, alienation, all of that. Um, sometimes people just read books and became alienated um, because it was the fashion to do so or to think you were alienated. Given that we've been in this volatile period, are, are we moving towards a period that is more volatile right now or one that you think might be less so come, going forward? Well, I mean, the volatility is in religion, and it's not there today. I mean, uh, at, at the end of the book, I um, well, let's keep in mind, in, in the 50s, Americans built more churches and synagogues um, than at any other time before or since. Uh, it, was a, it was a very unusual period. 98% of Americans said they believed in God, and they went to church and, and synagogues to show it. And uh, the connection between religion and, and patriotism uh, during the Cold War against what? Atheist communism um, was very powerful. People who compl- There were people, I thought, stupidly complaining uh, that uh, under Bush Jr. there was going to be a theocracy here because he talked openly about his faith. And it was a very simple faith that he articulated. Uh, but, and it was basically therapeutic. Um, he, um, uh, but, it, but, but in, when Eisenhower ran, ran for president the second time, the Re, uh, Republican National Committee released a statement, effusive in its language, saying, President Eisenhower is not only the president of the United States and commander in chief, he is also the spiritual leader of our, of our country. And there wasn't a lot of griping about that, even from the Democrats. Um, try doing that today. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, my university here, 
the motto, although it didn't get the motto, it got the motto much earlier, says right off on the building, uh, one of the main buildings, for God, country, and Notre Dame. Um, in that order, I might add. <laughs> um, alumni is not probably for Notre Dame, uh, country, and, and maybe God. But, uh, uh, yeah, uh, people don't realize uh, how these were connected. I have one other theme I'd like to mention in here. Um, that I talk about because uh, it's a different way of addressing what's going on right now. I uh, resort to memoir and autobiography early in the book, especially Mm -hmm. because I want people to to feel what it was like. I want to, it's what I call lived history, what it was like growing up in, in such a different time. And then I contrast it in the epilogue with what's going on today. And you don't have to be an expert to see what's going on. You just have to be a grandparent. Uh, but the uh, couple of things that I would cite, I talk about growing up, I, and I don't know what you, whether you would agree with your growing up or not, but um, mine was, uh, you felt like you were at the center of concentric circles of belonging. Uh, that's my image. Uh, Family, yes. Some extended kin. I grew up in suburbs, so I wasn't either in a small town and I wasn't in uh, an ethnic neighborhood, and I was of mixed ethnicity, uh, am. Um, but it, but I belonged to a neighborhood, and I belonged to a whole town, uh, Rocky River, Ohio. I belonged to, which is a suburb. I belonged to uh, uh, a Catholic church that, you know, my people were wherever there was a Catholic church. And when you went from grade school to high school, as I did with the Jesuits, the church was the high school in a, in a very powerful way. Um, the way it isn't for other uh, religious uh, communities in this country. Um, and then Notre Dame, of course. Um, and you, it, we also were free of a lot of influences. There was enormous diversity. Uh, we used to go into central Cleveland, which is still a niftily uh, ethnic place, and pretend that we were, you know, knew the bride and groom, and we'd cod free drinks at uh, the Ukrainian how, uh, club and places like that where they held, where they, where they held uh, marriages. And then we would go to a different part of the country, you know, and go someplace in the south where there's more Baptists than there are people, and you felt like you were in different land. Um, and so religion and, uh, and ethnicity and geography made for a wonderful diversity. I would say that when um, the poet Ginsburg and uh, Jack Kerouac from uh, Lowell, Mass., and Ginsburg from Jersey, and a little later, Willie, uh, oh, who was the writer, uh, the editor of, um, uh, of Harper's, when they went oh, up Will- to Willie Columbia, Mars, yeah. they, yeah. When they went, came when they came north and met at the university. Although the more is a little later, um, they came from different parts of the country. People thought and felt in different ways. Uh, kids today coming to college have all been had their sensibilities shaped by the same television programs, uh, the, uh, the technology of the phones they hold in their hand, and so forth. They're really not different. Uh, they're only divided along class lines, and those that matriculate 
to the uh, elite schools are more alike than different. Um, that's a loss, it seems to me. But in any case, um, you watch the young people today, and they are not at the center of concentric circles of belonging. Uh, the family's been uh, emaciated uh, in terms of divorce, uh, uh, unwed, uh, uh, you know, kids with uh, uh, the, the father's gone, and this is whites as well as blacks. Um, the, the decline of the family is the single most uh, startling institutional change in my lifetime. Um, they can't go out in the morning and come back at night because you don't do that anymore. Uh, nobody's home. There are no neighborhoods. I, I'm exaggerating. There are far fewer neighborhoods because there's nobody home during the day. Both sides are working. It's almost like the Soviet Union when I visited it there. Everybody had to work. And now for different reasons, everybody has to work. Um, so the kids grow up not connected to institutions and suspicious of them. And so, uh, and they take longer to grow up. They don't get married and settle down in a big job until typically around 30 if they've gone to college. So, uh, and there are no blue collar jobs to speak of. That's the great pressing problem for African-Americans. Um, so they grow up branding themselves so they can get into college. So they can get, in many cases, a Wizard of Oz um, degree, uh, certificate, uh, that really doesn't, um, really doesn't represent uh, something learned. So obviously I've got a, a rather negative view of what's going on in higher education. Um, much as I loved school and went to three or four colleges, as I remember, I had a hard time getting away from that. Um, it's very different. So I'm a little pessimistic about all of this. And I, and, and they're, they're going to have to, the young people are going to have to find a way to um, not see themselves as individuals and adversarial and, 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 and what, what's the word I want? Um, instrumental in their relationships. You don't enter a marriage saying, it's going to be good for me. Uh, that's why uh, the romantic thing doesn't last very long. Uh, and they have a hard time learning what they're, and yet they're more dependent on the family, the immediate family, uh, kids are today, than we ever were. Once you got married, you left. Uh, once you went to college, you didn't, uh, you know, do what the kids do, call home all the time. Um, I'm looking at the negative side here, but it's too, <laughs> too widespread not to notice. So uh, at the end of the book, I, these are some of the themes that I pick up, and I pick them up uh, because there's been a lot of talk about the nons, right? The non religiously non-affiliated in voting. The religiously non-affiliated, which means atheists, agnostics, but mostly people who just could care less, um, is the largest single constituency in the Democratic Party, uh, larger than the African-American by far. It's about 24% of the, of the party, uh, bigger than women, um, because people forget women vote for Republicans, too. Um, so I think uh, uh, that reflects uh, distance from religious institutions, but they're distant from 
the other institutions as well. Kenneth Woodward, his book is Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics, from the age of Eisenhower to the era of Obama. Ken, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, uh, I hope I didn't talk your ear off, but I'm pretty (laughs) enthusiastic about the book. Thanks a lot. We appreciate it. Thank you.